Okay, let's, let's take our time in God's word together. Uh, excited about this passage. Excited to have this time with you. I'm, I'm a little bit sorry that you only get to listen to the sermon. I had the joy of spending time this week in the text preparing the sermon, so I feel like I get much more of a blessing. Uh, you get about 35, 40 minutes of it, but uh, I had several hours, but I'm excited about what God wants to share with us today. In the Gospel of John, and our text is not in the Gospel of John, but I want to use something from the Gospel of John to introduce our text in Psalm 119. Towards the end of John chapter 13 and running through chapter 16 is what has become known as Jesus' farewell discourse. So really a, a wonderful section of the Bible that is well worth spending much time in. It's a time where Jesus had this wonderful heart-to-heart talk with his disciples because he was about to leave them, thus his farewell discourse. Now, I think we can almost imagine what it must have been like to be one of those disciples, to hang out with Jesus so much of the time, and to have Jesus pour into us so much of his resources, time, and energy. I mean, it's, it, it's more than just having Jesus for a community group leader. It'd be like having Jesus for your community group leader, and you're just going to have community group every day, all day, and just hang out together, sit, listen to what Jesus has to say, interact with him, share with him your concerns, your thoughts, your questions, and interact. And it's like, so we can, we can kind of imagine this was a special place to be. At one point, Jesus says, guys, we need to talk because I'm going to be leaving you pretty soon. Now, knowing or imagining what it must have been like to hang out with Jesus for several years and all of a sudden have him break the news, I'm going to be leaving pretty soon, must have hit them fairly hard. In that discourse, he shares some extremely important things with his disciples. Here's some things I I need you to realize before I go. We have to have this talk before I leave so that you understand what life is going to be like when I'm not here. What will it be like to be a disciple of mine in this world who is not belonging to me And yet you are going to remain, and what must you know to remain well? The first thing he says is, guys, you have to be sure to love one another. This is really the greatest thing and the most important thing. All will be lost. Nothing will be fruitful if you don't love each other. This is extremely important. So the way I loved you, be sure that you love one another. I also want you to know when things don't go well, when things look bad, don't lose heart because I'm actually going to prepare a place for you. In other words, I've got a future for you, a future place for you to come to. So when in the present things are not looking good, just know you've got a secure future and and don't sell out your better future for the present. Don't get deceived into thinking that you don't have something better ahead of you. In other words, don't, don't lose heart. Stay devoted to the things that I've taught you. Let your love for me find its expression in your devotion and obedience to the things that I've taught you. Oh, and I'm actually not leaving you alone. I'm, I'm sending my spirit 
to reside with you and in you and there to help you in every way that you're going to need in order to be my disciple. So abide in me. Abide in me, abide in my words, just like a branch attached to a vine. That's how connected you are with me. That's how connected you must remain in me. This is really the only way that you will, after I leave, be able to be fruitful, to bear fruit as a member of my family. Jesus prepared them for the hard reality that belonging to him in a world that does not means that they are submitting themselves into a conflict. You need to realize that by being my follower, Jesus is telling his disciples, because you're my follower and you're going to remain in a world that really is not my home, that is not surrendered to me, that puts you in a conflict. In other words, you, you, in a sense, you, you kind of live in a war zone. By joining my family, you've made yourself an enemy. And this is what Jesus wants to prepare. And he wraps up this talk. This is the final verse in the discourse, chapter 16, verse 33. And he says, now I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Take heart, I have overcome the world. So, in other words, you are in a kind of war zone. You have entered in by belonging to me into a grand conflict. But I want you to know that in me you can live at peace. You can experience and know peace in me because I'm greater, I'm more powerful, and have overcome the world that is opposing you because it opposes me. Okay, so our text, Psalm 119, third stanza, verses 17 to 24, is one man's prayer who's coming to terms with this reality of the conflict that he's living in. So instead of realizing this conflict and falling into despair, losing heart, or giving up altogether, he prays his way through. And this prayer is meant to teach us really the key to living for God, with God, in a world that doesn't. So let's read our text together. I'm in Psalm 119, beginning in verse 17. We'll read those eight verses. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I've kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate 
on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Spirit of God, we just, I pray again, I pray together with this congregation, Lord, for the opening up of this passage and really for the opening up of our hearts, the opening up of our eyes to see, the opening up of our ears to hear, the opening up of our hearts to receive. Speak to us by your spirit. You know full well every individual in this room, the particular situation that they are in, the circumstances they are facing, the state of their heart. Bless them. Lead us into your peace for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at the context of the psalmist in this situation and then his cry and then his conclusion. First, the context. It begins with him calling himself the Lord's servant. Remember, where are we here? Deal bountifully with your servant. Okay, this is fashioning out the context of this writer. He is the Lord's servant who finds himself a sojourner amidst opposition. That's the summary of the context of this writer. First, your servant. Your servant, your slave, your bondservant. Honestly, in our society, in our day and time, we really don't have much use for these words. Our American history of slavery, of race-based slavery, has been such a, a blight on our country. And while we're grateful for the strides and progression that has taken place, we still feel the effects of this history. It is, it is painful. But what we've come to abhor and what has brought so much trouble and suffering into our current society takes on an entirely different light in the scriptures. Servant of the Lord means something entirely different. Listen to Christopher Ash making comment on this. The title servant of the Lord is a title of dignity. It means one who belongs to the Lord, who is bound to the Lord by bonds of covenant, who is safely in the Lord's household, to whom the Lord is committed, for whom the Lord has promised to act in rescue. Charles Spurgeon says as well, he takes pleasure, this writer, this servant of the Lord, takes pleasure in owning his duty to God and counts it the joy of his heart to be in the service of his God. An entirely different context. We would gladly call ourselves, wear the badge, servant of the Lord. The terminology actually comes from God. Listen to Isaiah 41. As God speaks to his people Israel, but you, Israel, my servant. Okay, up to that point, you could hear that a couple different ways. You, Israel, are my servant. You are my slaves. But listen, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, 
You're my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Okay, sign me up to be a servant of the Lord. God introduced the concept that way, and now you begin to see. So instead of some kind of forced bondage against our will, we're talking about a badge of honor that is the product of receiving extraordinary favor and kindness from God. It is a fitting way to describe the sense of gratitude and devotion towards the Lord who's lavished grace upon us. In this context, who he is is the servant of the Lord. That's his identity. So he thinks about himself, understands himself to be, and does so gladly. But goes on to say, I'm a sojourner on the earth, a stranger, a resident in a place that's not my home. So now we belong to the Lord. It means that our ultimate identity, our ultimate citizenship, our true and ultimate future home is with him and not here. We reside. We reside in a place that's not really our home. The Old Testament law lays out some wonderful wisdom. Leviticus 25 Here's the law through Moses came. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. You see the wisdom of God in this strange law. You can buy a piece of property and you can have it for seven years. You can have it for 49 years. Then it goes back. And it's gone. That's not yours. You, you cannot own a piece of property in perpetuity. You cannot own it forever. Why? Because I don't want you to think or realize or be deceived into the idea that this is your permanent home. It's temporary. You have a permanent home. Don't sell out and give up what is so much greater for what is so much less. And so God in his wisdom lays out this Old Testament law for the people of Israel to make this very point. God gives us a citizenship and a future home that far exceeds the one we're in. He cautions us against settling for far too little. This is the context. A responsible resident, but not a permanent owner. A stranger, a traveler. Servant of the Lord, resident alien. And he lives among the insolent. Verse 21, the insolent. Okay, to be insolent, okay, put that in a long list of bad personal character traits. You can be this, you can be that, you can be hot-tempered, 
You can be short-fused, you can be insolent, you can be arrogant. We think of being insolent in a long list. But I believe what's happening here is the psalmist is using a term that is in a sense characterizing the whole nature of sin. But at its, at its meaning, it's about being self-willed, insolent. And, and specifically, in this psalm, self-willed about God's word. In other words, to be insolent, according to Psalm 119, is to say, I don't believe what God said. What God said is not good enough for me. I take issue with what God has said. This is what he calls insolent. Jeremiah used the same term in Jeremiah 43. Described the men. When Jeremiah came with the word of the Lord to the men, and they responded to Jeremiah, you're telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say that. He says those were insolent men. They were rejecting what God had to say. It was the same thing that took place in the garden. Just an amazing story in the early chapters of Genesis about the fall, about what happened. Did God really say? And, and what took place first in Eve's heart, then in Adam's heart, was what, what, what God had said. I just don't believe that's really for my good. I don't think God had my best interest at heart when he said you can have any and every tree except one, just be sure not to eat from this one. Huh, who does God think he is? I think he's withholding from me. I think I could decide what is best for me. I reject what God has said. Insolent. Characteristic, really, of all sin. The source of all sin. A rejection of what God has said. Looking unfavorably on God's word. So the context of our writer saying, I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm a stranger in this land, and I live among the insolent. Even princes, he says, who sit and rise up against me. Now, when this psalmist is writing this poetry, he refers to princes. It's not just, oh, he happened to have one bad prince who's particularly in office at that particular time, and that particular prince has given him a hard time. I'm, I'm really confident that what he's writing about is that the authorities, broadly speaking, the authorities of the earth, they're opposed to God, they're not in line with God, they're insolent against God, and these, this is the authority structure in the world that we live in, and they're opposed to the things of God. So you see, his context creates the conflict. I'm a servant of the Lord. Are you a servant of the Lord? You belong, heart and soul, to the Lord. He's rescued you. He's saved you. You, you wear that badge with, with honor. I am the Lord's servant. But that means you're a stranger, an alien in this world. And you live amongst the insolent 
and even the authorities that work to oppose the Lord. This creates the conflict. This is what Jesus was preparing his disciples for. It's the context that you and I find ourselves in. And here's your options. You can lose heart. You can be discouraged. You can give up. You could take a, if you can't beat them, join them attitude. You could compromise, try to make friends with everybody on both sides of this conflict. You could doubt God's word. You could cease to trust. You could cease to abide. You could give up. Or, or you could allow the context to generate a cry in your heart and come to the Lord with it. Second point is his cry. Is the context that he's in, which creates a conflict that he's in, but it produces a cry in his heart. And so the section begins, deal bountifully with me, O Lord, your servant. Deal bountifully. That word in the Hebrew is gamal. Starts with the letter gimel, like our G. It's the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so this section, every verse, starts with a gimel. And the opening word of this section is gamal, which is translated deal bountifully with me. Or another translation, deal fully. Or in other words, Lord, give me all that I need. Lord, supply what I need. Raise me up. Mature me. Give me all of your supply. Make sure that I have all that you have to offer and all that I need to know and to walk in your ways. I am your servant, but I'm a stranger here amongst the insolent. O oh Lord, deal bountifully with me. Give me what I need. Supply what I need to be your servant in this context. And then this wonderful phrase, so this is how I'm asking you to do it. Lord, open my eyes. Open my eyes. This is an act of God that is needed in order for us to receive God's supply. How does Gamal take place? How does God dealing bountifully take place? Well, here's the means. Lord, in order for me to receive the supply that you have, here's my prayer, here's my cry, open up my eyes. Divine illumination of divine revelation is how we get from here to there. It's how we enter into the bounty and the supply of the Lord. Divine help to see what we are incapable of seeing, even if it's right in front of us. Open my eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. Law here being an all-encompassing term for all that God has spoken. Lord, give me eyes to see clearly in all the things that you've spoken. Lord, show me the wonder of your commands. 
how they guide us in wisdom and protect us from destruction. Open my eyes to see beyond just what a set of restrictions that God says no to and things that God tells me, you must do this and you can't do this. Is that eyes open to see the glory and the wisdom of God? No, show me, Lord, the true glory of your words, your commandments. Show me, Lord, the wonders of your judgments, how right and just and how true when you speak, when you make a declaration. And of course, show me, Lord, the wondrous things of your promises, that you would speak words of promise to encourage my own soul, how they keep us, how they guide us, how they give us hope, how we find strength in the things that God has promised. I know you know this. I know you experience this. What do you do when you're discouraged? You lay hold of, you grab hold of, you recite, you rehearse, you meditate upon what? What God has promised so that his words become true and your soul experiences and sees wondrous things. And there is the wonder of the testimonies of the Lord. I want to take you through a few stories in the Old Testament, little vignettes where God opened people's eyes. These are fun stories to read. I encourage you to spend some time in them. I'm going to give you brief versions here. Hagar and God's provision in Genesis 21. Okay, Hagar was, was, was a woman who was the handmaiden for Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Abraham is called by God and says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a nation. In fact, I'm going to make you into many nations. And Abram says, I don't have any children. And he and Sarah could not have children. And they waited and they waited. They waited painfully long and still. Okay, so they're past their prime. So Sarah comes up with this grand idea. Abraham, why don't you go with my handmaiden and have a child with her? And he does, and they do. And Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. As the story goes on, Ishmael's born, but after that, Isaac is born. The, the true child of the promise. God actually did fulfill his promise, even though they had somewhat given up hope and looked for alternatives. Here comes Isaac. Well, once Isaac is there, Sarah says, Abraham, get rid of this lady and her son. He has no part. Well, it didn't set well with Abraham broke his heart, didn't want to do it, but the Lord spoke. It's, it's okay. I've got him covered. I'll watch over him. Go ahead and send him away. I've got plans for him. I've got plans for you. And this distinguishing will be good for all of redemptive history for, for us to sit here this morning and realize the distinction and the child, the son of the promise. So he sends them away. Oh, I have to read it to you. Okay. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water, gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. 
And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And here it is. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Okay, how can you be starving, dying of thirst, and not see a well that is there? She could not see it. The Lord opened her eyes to see what God had provided. It wasn't an imaginary well. Okay, that's why... They wrote, okay, she went and got some water and she gave it to the boy and he drank it and they survived. She didn't want to watch her son die, understandably. I can't bear to see that. The Lord comes and opens her eyes and she sees a well. The story reads a little odd, doesn't it? The mother cried and God heard the voice of the boy. Sounds a little odd, like God didn't care about Hagar. She could cry all she wants. He was just listening. No, the Lord heard the boy. The, the Lord's attention went to where his mother's heart was directing the Lord's attention. Don't worry, Mom. I hear the cry of the child. Some of you know this. In fact, we've had several conversations as we've prayed for some of our children. In fact, we, I remember a few years ago, we called a special prayer meeting. Parents for children. We need to pray for our children. And I think it's a beautiful story of as we do that, as we cry, we're crying out for our children. And God says, fear not. I hear the voice of the child and we're trusting God for our children to call out to the Lord and rescue them there's so many times friends we cannot see God's provision our prayer ought to be open my eyes Lord you face desperate times you face times where you say, like Hagar, I can't bear to look. I have no hope. This is the end. My son is going to die. I'm going to die. I can't bear to watch it. But the Lord opened her eyes to see God's provision. That ought to be your prayer and my prayer. When I feel despair, oh Lord, open my eyes. Second story, Balaam. Balaam out earning a little extra cash, a little job on the side, doing some prophesying for an evil king against God's people. He's going to work one night to earn a little extra. 
And as he's going, he's riding his donkey, and the donkey stops and won't go forward. He beats the donkey. Next day, same thing happens a second time. The donkey's reacting to something, presses him up against the wall, won't go forward. He's, Balaam's frustrated with the donkey, he beats the donkey a second time. Third time, happens again. Donkey has nowhere else to go. First time he wandered off in the field. Second time he pressed him up against the wall. Third time he had no alternative. The donkey just goes to the ground, sits down. And Balaam is peeved and starts beating on this donkey. Okay, then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you've made a fool out of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you've ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you in this way? And he said, well, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. Balaam's way was perverse. And God was stopping him. But Balaam couldn't see it. But his donkey could. Sometimes the Lord is standing in our way. Sometimes we want something that the Lord doesn't want us to have. But sometimes we want something so badly that it blinds us to what God wants. And we keep pressing and we keep moving. And God graciously stands in our way and stops us. So, well, let me ask you a question. What's the difference then between God opposing you and something just being good but difficult that you have to persevere through? You just, you have to keep going. It's just, it's just hard. And some things are hard. Many things are hard. And so don't give up. It's the right thing. How do you tell the difference? How many of you have had times where you want, is God standing in my way? Is that, what's going, is that why this is so difficult? How do you know the difference? Well, you don't unless the Lord opens your eyes, which is why you should pray, Lord, open my eyes. Do you see what's happening here? That is not God just setting down some rule to say, if you just follow the rule, you'll be fine. Go off on your own. But is actually creating a daily dependence interaction between you and the Lord. Today, this day, Lord, open my eyes. I didn't give you some code in the Bible to give you all the answers for your life and your direction. What I want you to do is seek me each day interact with me, listen to my voice, cry out to me and say, oh Lord, 
Show me wonderful things about your word, your ways. Lord, open my eyes. Last one, 2 Kings chapter 6, Elijah and God's protection. The king of Syria was coming to attack Elijah because Elijah was supernaturally telling the king of Israel everything that the king of Syria was doing. So every time the king of Syria is trying to sneak up on Israel, Elijah had forewarned them, oh, Syria's going over here, Syria's over here, watch out here. And the king of Syria got really frustrated and said, Where, who's the mole? Who's giving away all the palace secrets to the king of Israel? And they said, it's nobody but Elijah. It doesn't matter how secret. You could be talking in your bedroom alone. And Elijah knows it and tells the king. So he goes with an army to get Elijah. A servant of Elijah gets up one morning, walks out the door and sees an entire army surrounding them and says, alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elijah said, oh, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. be a servant of the Lord in a world that is not puts us in danger, puts us in conflict, real danger, that at times is terrifying. And so what should we do? Jesus said, don't be afraid. I've overcome the world. Elijah was not afraid. Why? Because his eyes were open. The servant was afraid. Why? Because he could not see what God was providing, the protection that the Lord was giving to them. But when his eyes were open, he could see the chariots of fire. And everything looked different once his eyes were opened. I was thinking, praying, Lord, all, all I want to do is get everybody to pray every day, Lord, open my eyes. Take one thing away from today, one thing out of this sermon. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray this prayer. I'm going to seek after this. I'm going to realize I need my eyes opened. I'm going to realize it's the Lord alone who can open my eyes. And when I feel distraught, and when I feel afraid, and when I feel like there's no way out and I'm facing death or I'm facing loss, when there's not enough, when there's danger coming at me, I'm going to pray, Lord, open my eyes to see what I cannot see, even though it be right in front of me. Here's our writer's conclusion. Everything in his heart cries for drawing him towards God's word. 
Deal bountifully with me, Lord, that I might live and keep your word. Open my eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul longs for your rules. In spite of opposition, I will meditate on your statutes. And he finishes the stanza with this. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. What is the means between my need and God's supply? This prayer is informing us that all we need, to have all that we need comes to us in and through the word of God. It is God's supply for us. God proved and accomplished this by sending to us his living word. We should not study Psalm 119 and think we've got just a great book. A great book we certainly do have. But the book points to and talks about a living word, a personal savior, Christ himself. John, opening up his gospel, had it right. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father. Okay, what does God want you to see? What has God made visible? Okay, does God want you to see wells of water in the desert? Does God want you to see the angel of the Lord with a flaming sword blocking your way? What God wants you to see is his son, the person of Jesus in all his glory. What is our path? How to be a servant of the Lord in a world that's not? How do we get from here to there? What is it that we need? We need to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. This requires God's spirit. There were many people that stood face to face with Jesus and could not recognize him. Two people in a conversation with Jesus. One saw the glory and the other didn't. Lord, open my eyes. You could be here. You could know many things about Jesus. You could know your Bible well. You could quote scriptures. You could have deep theological discussions about the deity of Christ. But you could still not have your eyes opened to the Savior. They are not necessarily the same thing. It's when you see, as Bill was even leading us in, in communion, when you know, when you see, when your eyes have been opened, that that death on the cross was for your sins. Then you're beginning to see the true glory of the Son.
Worship team, you can come on up. How do we live for God in a world that doesn't? If you are in Christ, you're in a conflict. What do we need to not merely survive, but thrive and bear fruit like Jesus talked about in John chapter 15? This conflict ought to drive us to God's word and that we need eyes to see it in all its wonder. We need to see what God has revealed, his son in all his glory. And when you see him, when you see his glory, you will be changed. And you will realize God's provision. You will realize God's protection. You will begin to comprehend all the bountiful provision, all the gamal from the Lord into your life. Let's stand and worship in closing.